Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day School podcast, I'm speaking with Noel Freeline. Noel is the upper school music teacher at Davidson Day, and he is also a professional jazz musician. Noel's musical accomplishments are vast. He is leader of the Noel Friedland Quintet, and he has recorded eight albums. He performs regularly with the Charlotte Symphony and has written and recorded music for ESPN, ABC, and the Walt Disney Company. Noel, thanks for your time today. I'm glad to be here. All right. The first question that I have is, where in Kansas did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? <laughs> Well, I grew up in a small town in Kansas, which I like to joke is, you know, just saying that is redundant. A little town outside of Wichita, a little farm community, Clearwater, Kansas. Grew up on a, on a dirt road. We lived on about 10 acres that, uh, that prior to us building a house on it was a, was a wheat field. And there were wheat fields on all four sides of the house. And I grew up as a farm boy. I could drive a tractor long before I could drive a car. And when did you start playing music and what inspired you to do so? Someone paid me for the first time when I was about 18 years old, and I remember at the time, minimum wage uh, in 1985, 1984, around there, uh, was $3.35 an hour, and somehow I got this gig. I just started at Wichita State University, and uh, I got this gig playing at some country club, and and they said, yeah, it's going to pay $20 an hour. And, you know, and it was for two hours. I was like, 40 bucks for two hours? And then they, I, I ended up doing overtime, and I, I think I went home with $80. Wow. I mean, and, you know, and again, minimum wage, three thirty-five plus you take out the day. I would have either made 10 bucks or, eight, you know, so I had such a good time, and I thought, this is the greatest job in the world. <laughs> and so I just kept pursuing it. And uh, I was very fortunate in that a lot of opportunities uh, opened themselves up to me. And, and I was able to, to start working. I actually ended up paying my way through college the last couple of years as a musician. And what about when you're a younger child? Like, so what did, was music a big part of your family? Like, where, how did you start? Did you, how old were you when you started playing the piano? I started taking piano lessons when I was like eight or nine, you know, something like that. And uh, my father, who's still living, he's 85 years old, uh, is a piano player. Now, he never worked professionally, but he uh, uh, used to play, uh, he plays a style called Western Swing, like uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. It'd be a, uh, you know, the older band from the 40s and, um, or a more contemporary group, Asleep at the Wheel, the West, uh, Western Swing band. And he used to play, and, and when I was a kid, he used to play around the house and and just to make the house just rock. I mean, it was a, it was, it was quite amazing. And I, and I remember watching him and wanting to, wanting to do what he was doing. And uh, and then also like at church, we were very active in our little church and first, first you know had a B flat Christian church there in Clearwater, Kansas. And uh, you know we all sang in the choir. My mom and my parents had a gospel quartet called the Mess, and they used to go around to other local area churches and perform. And and I was you know I was in the school band and and that sort of thing. And about sixth grade, I thought I remember consciously going. I want to be a musician. And you know, it's one of those things as a kid, you think this would be really cool. But in the back of my head, even, you know, as I got older, I was like, I never really imagined I'd get to do it. It was one of those things like, this would be really cool. I want to be a jet fighter pilot. I want to be an ass, you know, I'm going to be a, and uh, yeah, I want to be a professional bass fisherman. I mean, things that, you know, just, uh, and, and I remember being 18 years old in a jazz club in Wichita, which sounds like an oxymoron. I remember being 18 years old in a club. I'd never played in a jazz, and with this band, they were all much older than I was, and they were amazing musicians. And I, I remember sitting there going, I can't believe I'm getting to do this the whole night. I just had so much fun, and it was, a, it was just amazing. And that I remember that feeling so distinctly of going, I can't believe I'm getting to this. Is, I'm actually getting to do this. And, and Pete, this is going to sound like, you know, it's going to sound like a platitude or something, but last weekend I was playing in Hilton Head and we did four sellout shows with my band and I was playing with some amazing musicians and I, you know, same thing. I'm sitting there going, I can't believe I'm getting to do this. I, st- I'm still amazed. And it's such a, such an absolute privilege to get to participate in the world of music. And so what I, you mentioned jazz music was that. I'm guessing it probably wasn't, but was that big in Kansas at all? Oh yeah, Wichita is the jazz mecca of the of the universe, okay. right there. Well, it's, it's actually that's Oklahoma City is the jazz mecca, cultural center of the universe. No, um, probably the only guy in my hometown of two thousand people who knew anything about jazz music 
gave me an album when I was in eighth grade, and it was a Dave Brubeck album. And uh, and you know, you know, but you, when you're in eighth grade, he hands me this album on the front, this mosaic, you know, by I think by Miro, and and I turn it over, and there's this picture of four guys. They're all wearing dark suits, skinny black ties, white shirts, horn rim glasses. And I'm just like, is this a, in a band of accountants or science yeah. teachers? Or, and it didn't look cool, Pete. And so I didn't put it on immediately. And because uh, that was back when you, you know, albums, you, if you didn't know what it sounded like, well, does it look cool? And, uh, and eventually I had this little stereo that had lights that lit up to the beat and I put it on and, and it was like, wow, this is, I kind of like this. And then the third track hit, which is a, the tune called Take Five. And I was like, oh, I've heard this before. And, uh, and of course, it was the top, it was only one of the only jazz songs ever be a top 40 hit. And so that that kind of hooked me right there. So, and then, sorry, who got you the album? <laughs> I was, I had a girlfriend uh, in eighth grade and her dad got me the album. And uh, yeah, his name was Daryl Filbert. And uh, to this day, I, I'm, I owe my career to to Mr. Filbert. And did he just get it for your birthday or why did he buy you a jazz album? The school had a, a little junior high jazz band that I was playing in. And uh and he's like, oh, well, I'll get, you know, Noel this album for Christmas. And, and that's how I ended up with it. Isn't it crazy that a, a moment so small turned, like, just shapes your life forever? Absolutely. I think we, I think all of us, I think if you talked and you dig deep enough, every one of us has one of those paradigm shift moments that's exactly, you said, some very small thing It can seem so random that could that change, the, change the entire universe. My story along those, along those lines is I at the end of high school was going to England for a year to become what I thought was a professional soccer player, but I had a job at a school as a teacher's aide so I could live there, help out, and then you know pursue the soccer thing. But then I did a week in my local public school where I went to school before I left, and I was just in the like, you know, probably third, fourth, fifth grade classroom, spending time with the kids. And the principal wrote me a little reference at the end. And I still have it. It says, Pete should seriously consider taking up teaching as a vocation. And I thought, no, I'm going to become, an, I'm going to go and play soccer. And then I went to this school and just loved being around kids. But just that, right, those words of like, this is something that you should consider doing. I'd never sort of thought about it before and suddenly it became my career and he saw it before, way before I did. So the main part of our conversation is you decided to go to the University of North Florida to study music. Why did you choose that particular school? Well, I had actually had started at Wichita State University, which was 45 minutes from my house. And, and I started there because I was a small town boy and I was scared to go to, to a large university. I was I wanted to go to North Texas State University, which is in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas, which is a high power, just a major force in the world of jazz education. And the guy I wanted to study with, after two years at Wichita State, I felt confident enough to, to make this move and uh, found out that he was no longer at North Texas, that he'd been brought to this small university in Northeast Florida to start an American music program that a million-dollar endowment had put down and been put down by a guy named Ira Koger, who was a man who kind of developed the whole concept of industrial parks or executive parks. And uh, great, great gentleman. Anyway, I name was Rich Madison, was this educator. And uh, and so I, I reached out to him, came down, visited the school, and he hadn't even started the program yet. I ended up being the first out-of-state student to sign in on this program. And uh, today, University of North Florida, the jazz program, is easily in the top 10 in the United States, if not the top five. But it wasn't when I started. And, and it probably didn't rise much until after I left. But it, uh, um, it, uh, but that's how I ended up kind of this ran- – I had, had – I mean, I, of course, had heard of Jacksonville, Florida. And, you know, we, my idea of Flo- – growing up in the Great Plains, my idea of Florida was, you know, everyone walked around in a bathing suit drinking orange juice and the sun shine- shining all the time. And, but, I mean, I'd heard of Jacksonville. But had no desire to move to Jacksonville, or just didn't know anything about it, and I ended up in this city, you know, way uh, half a country away from my uh, from my family and everything I'd grown up around. And uh, like anyone who tends to move a long ways from home, it was tough at first. You know, it was good. It was something I needed to do. It was, I needed to get out of the nest, and I needed to 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 struggle a bit and learn how to you know grow up a little bit. So that, but that's how I ended up at, in this at this school. Yeah. And so your path from North Florida to Davidson Day is a long and windy one. Can you describe the journey for us in three days or less? 
I, you know, I, I ended up graduating from the University of North Florida in, uh, in Jacksonville, stayed there uh, after I graduated. There wasn't a lot waiting for me in Wichita. And so I, I graduated and uh, started working at this uh, restaurant and club, playing solo piano and five nights a week, playing and singing. Met a lady there that uh, is now my wife. End up, I, you know, they went from a solo piano gig. A couple months later, they let me bring in a bass player and a drummer and then a vocalist and and that was the beginning of, of that. We did that until 2000. We felt like we were traveling throughout the Southeast at that point and had played just about every jazz festival and concert series in the Southeast. And we thought, you know, someone said, you should try Las Vegas. I hear, you know, the Bellagio is a very classy place. And I, <laughs> I had no desire to go to Las Vegas. But they, uh, we found out there was a day that we'd kind of reached the ceiling and we found out there was a day that they were, the Bellagio would audition bands twice a year and usually about 20 bands would come in in one day and they might hire one or two per year, you know, out of those. I, pun intended, I rolled the dice, bought some plane tickets on my, you know, paid, just went ahead and re, you know, reached out and reached down the pocket and, and, and the bank account and bought plane tickets for the whole band. We flew out, we did a 15 minute audition. Walked off the stage. The lady that auditioned us said, "You guys are great. When can you start?" And I wow. tried, tried not to let her see my tail wag. And yeah. I'm like, "Well, I, I need to, you know, check with my manager." And I, you know, got over on the phone. I'm like, "Hey, mom." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do I have anything on my calendar that? Yeah, no, I. Yeah, I didn't think I did. Cool. Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> so anyway, we ended up as a house gig uh, at the Bellagio for about three years. And, and what's that mean to be a house gig? Well, we were there for you know sometimes it depended on sometimes our schedule would change, but we would do an average you know four or five nights a week every every week week in week out. In, and so in a restaurant in a like where where were you playing? Like there, it, there was there was a lounge. Uh, okay. If you've been to uh, to uh, Las Vegas uh, to the Bellagio, if you're coming from Caesar's Palace, you'd walk down. There's this this you know this walkover. It has the shops of Bellagio, and, and you walk straight into this place called the Allegro Lounge. And uh, and so yeah, we we would play there, and uh, it was a uh, but it was a different beast than anything that we, we were accustomed okay. to. You know, in what way? Well, subtlety is lost in Las Vegas. You know, I mean, it's you're hit with stimuli the minute you walk off the you know sounds and lights and everything. So you had to go high, loud, and fast, as we say you know, all the time, to try to keep people's attention. But people might end up in our room for a number of different reasons. One of them might be that they wanted to hear some music. More than likely, they wanted someplace to go sit down for a couple of minutes or maybe get a, you know, get a drink or a drink of water or maybe someplace to try and figure out how to tell their wife they just lost the life savings on the crap table. You know what I mean? And so folks would come in and they'd sit down and they might listen for two tunes or maybe three and then they'd get up and leave. Well, this, it was, uh, you know, it unnerved me because we were, you know, as a band leader, our job was to put people in the seats and hold them there. <laughs> and people go, you guys are great, but we've got so much to do and we're only here for three days, you know. So it, we learned how to do a show when we, we were in Las Vegas. And But after three years, it was time, we just, we all felt it was time to get back to the East Coast, didn't want to go back to Florida, love Atlanta, but the, you know, we knew we'd have to live so far away from outside of Atlanta and Lawrenceville or something to, to be able to afford a, you know, a school district and, and a home and, I had played in Charlotte several times in the 90s at some festivals here. And every time I was here, I was like, gosh, Charlotte's a nice place. People are friendly. It's clean. It's very up and coming. And so we kind of rolled the dice and, took, you know, we, we decided, let's, let's move to Charlotte. And start all over again, and uh, <laughs> and that was the whole band, or just your family doing that? No, that was the that was the whole band did that. Yeah, and uh, so we moved cross country again. Of course, this isn't it. It sounds so glamorous, but I mean, I was driving the truck myself. You know, and a twenty four foot truck pulled it with a car in tow, and and uh, which was basically a. You know, the, the truck itself is like a church pew covered in vinyl. And then basically, if you get a big guy behind you and shake it for like four days straight. And it was 117 degrees the day we left Las Vegas, you know, and it, it, one of those kind of trips. And so, but uh, we ended up in Los, in uh, in Charlotte. And after about a year, my band broke up. Okay. And that's the Noel Friedland Quintet. Yes, that that particular incarnation okay. uh, that I'd had uh, since 91 uh, broke up. And, and uh, <laughs> that's about a 10-year span. Yeah. Um, yes. And yeah. And it was pretty much the same same personnel for about ten years, which is amazing. And uh, I was we were able to keep that band a jazz group working four and five nights a week, basically. And uh, um, <laughs> but we came to Charlotte after about a year. My band broke up. Also, I was on the road. I had pulled 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 a new band together, and I was on the road all the time. And uh, there was a six week period. I was home about four days, and my son Thaddeus, who's now twenty one, is a senior at UNC Wilmington, was four at the time. And every time I'd call home, uh, you know, every few days, he'd start crying and asking when I, when I was going to come home. And and uh, I realized that 
that uh, though my dream was to be this this superstar in the music world, my family needed me, and not only that, but I needed them. And so I made a really hard decision at the time of giving up my what I thought, you know, giving up my dream and coming off the road, and so I could be with my family. And and then I had to figure out how I was going to make a living without being on the road, you know. And, and it's it's a little bit more tricky that way. So um, but it, you know what? It flash forward to where we are and. Uh, I didn't necessarily become a superstar in the jazz world, although I've had a great career. The time I've been able to spend with my with my children, my family, absolutely priceless. Wouldn't trade it for anything. I was afraid I was going to resent them because of what I gave up to to be with them, and it quickly became apparent that uh, uh, what I gained so far eclipsed what I lost uh, or what I was had given up. So, but that's, that's how we end up in Charlotte. But so then th- there's still a 10 year period between when you arrive and when you started Davidson Day. So you, that you sort of made the decision to sort of come off the road. What are you doing during that time? Uh, no, the, that 10 year period I did, like, I was like, okay, what do I know how to do? And uh, there's, I mean, there's a number of things I could do, but I, music was, was obviously what I do, do best. And for a period I taught, uh, taught private lessons out of my home. I think I had 35 private students and worked as a, uh, you know, freelance musician, a pickup musician on all sorts of gigs, everything private to, you know, private gigs to performances and that sort of thing. And I was, I had, it took a while to get myself reestablished or get myself established here. And then uh, ended up, teaching out at UNC Charlotte, uh, adjunct, which I still do today, which was great. And, uh, and, and what then, are you teaching? <laughs> I've taught everything, everything out there from, uh, everything from applied jazz piano lessons to the history of rock and roll to ear training and music theory. I've, I've directed their jazz ensembles, their vocal jazz ensemble. And, uh, I created their music business course that they have out there, which is a requirement for all music majors. And basically if anyone, <laughs> if anyone, uh, left or got, or got let go and they didn't have anyone else to teach the course, they'd go, Hey, Friedline, can you teach this? And, they never would say, have you done it before? They'd just say, can you do this? And, you know, in this business, there's no, no. It's like you, you book the gig and you learn the tunes later. And so I literally stayed one one chapter ahead of my students through an entire semester of history, rock and roll. And same thing with the history of jazz. And when I ran out of things, I would just make stuff up, Pete. I kid you not. And, uh, <laughs> but it was, I've discovered it, teaching is not that much different than being a performing musician as a jazz musician on the stage. It gets very fluid. It can go places you did not anticipate. Sometimes that's cool. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes some of the best moments of teaching have happened when things were completely unplanned. Matter of fact, more of the best moments tend to happen in those spontaneous... That's when the magic happens. The trick is when that magic happens, you think, oh, I'll do this again, but it doesn't... You can't recreate the magic. And uh, so, but yeah, so I I was... uh, I started teaching at UNCC and then... uh, we found out about Davidson Day, but I have three children. Uh, all three have graduated from, from Davidson Day School. Our, our youngest one just graduated. She was a senior last year. And so they were in a public school nightmare, and we were trying to figure out options. And this is when the football team was starting to take off, and my, my, my son Thaddeus was really into football at the time. And they, because they had so many football players, they also needed girls. We have two daughters, and we didn't, uh, we applied for, you know, to the school and financial aid, and things worked out that we were able to. The children were able to come. So I was a parent the first year. And then they, my, they had a talent show, and I had worked with my kids, and we taught, did a two-piano thing or duet sort of thing with my oldest, my two oldest, and uh, they were rock and roll fantasy. And I think they did everything from Sweet Child of Mine to Smoke on the Water to, to Back in Black. And, and it was just kind of this giant medley. And the headmaster at the time, Bonnie Cotter, said, can I talk to you sometime? And I was like, sure. You know, <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea why. And she came to, she along with uh, Michael Smith, head of upper school, said, hey, we want to do something hip and cool with our music program here. What do you suggest? And off the top of my head, I was like, well, you should do, you know, School of Rock meets Glee with a heavy dose of digital music technology and a little bit of music theory. I thought that sounded very clever. And he said, that sounds... <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, not a bad idea. So they, they said, that sounds great. Do you know anyone who can do it? And I thought, uh, offhand, I don't. And, uh, and they said, okay, well, let us know if you, th- you can think of someone. We'd be open to some you know, recommendations. And the more I got to thinking about that, because I knew my children would be involved in music, and they already were. And I thought, eh, you know, if, the, if my children are going to be part of this, the best person to do this is going to sound so arrogant. But I thought, the person I know that can do this best and better than anyone else is going to be me. And so I started teaching at Davison Day School. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start teaching at this school. We loved it. We thought Davison Day was amazing. My wife and I, we were, just could not believe our children were attending such an amazing school with such amazing teachers and everything. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to start teaching at this school, and I'm going to see behind the curtain— I'm going to see some things. I'm going to see the real, the real, the reality of it. But I'm not going to tell my wife because I don't want to 
disappoint her. I don't want her to be disenchanted because she's so happy and so thrilled with the school. But that's okay because our kids seem to be doing really, really well. And I started teaching and and Pete, this sounds like I was paid to say it, but I've said it year after year after year. I was even more impressed once I got a chance to see behind the curtain, you know, and and to see it as a parent and as a as an employee as a teacher. It's an amazing school, and and it is truly, it's truly the other teachers. Matter of fact, my first year I was miserable. I was so bad at this. I didn't know what I was doing. I was forty four years old. I'd never taught in a classroom with, with you know. I mean, I'd done collegiate level, but never high school and middle school, and had no clue what I was. Didn't know how to pick my battles. Didn't uh, anyway. It, the first year I was, I was sure I was. If I could have left at Christmas, you know, on at midway through the year, I would have. But I knew I couldn't leave them, and yeah, I signed a contract. And, an older teacher named Tom Madry, who taught uh, taught here, come here part time teaching math. He had taught at North Mecklenburg uh, High School for thirty years. He goes, "Nah, because you can't quit after your first year." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Nah, you got to teach two years, then you can decide if you want to continue on." I, I, I said, "Seriously?" <laughs> I respected like that's Tom. That's the rule. <laughs> I respected Tom. He was just a, he was had a lot of, a lot of experience. He had the driest sense of humor. He was drier than a popcorn fart. And uh, and so, anyways, <laughs> he was so Tom. And I said. Tom, are you serious? I need to, I have to teach another year. He goes, yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, I trusted Tom though. I said, okay. And the second year got better, you know? And a matter of fact, I had, when the word was getting around that I might leave, Matt Saunders, who I didn't know very well at the time, goes, man, he goes, are you leaving? Are you not coming back next year? I said, well, I don't think so. He goes, oh, I'm really bummed. He goes, you know, I think, I just think, and I, was, I was so surprised that anyone had noticed that I was even doing anything. I just felt like I was flailing, twisting in the wind. And, uh, Second year got better, and then the third year got better, and the fourth. And now I look back and I, I go, gosh, how did I luck into this amazing, uh, amazing position? You know, like you said, when I walked in, how was your day? I'm like, well, I fooled everybody today, so I guess I'll come back again tomorrow. You know. It's interesting you say that about, you know, looking behind the curtains is that was my feeling a little when I came here too, is that you come, we do the tour of the, we, you know, we came to campus, we did the tour and actually Izzy was one of the people that walked us around. Oh, my youngest yeah, daughter. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so then it was a couple of other kids as well. I'm like, wow, these children are amazing. Went into classrooms, actually went into yours and Ruby, my eldest was doing School of Rock at the time. Uh, before the world closed down and we just loved what we saw and we thought wow this is incredible and then as he said oh that's my dad and, and we both said oh i'm so sorry to hear that but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, nice. then, and then no it was just and you know it's you you think you're seeing i guess you're seeing all the highlights and you, you wonder what it's really like but we took the job and everything and then it's been so much better like people are even more genuine more thoughtful like i get to, people invite me to their classrooms i see different things and like wow this is this is amazing it's really cool and then just with my how my the, the experience that my kids have had it's been very very similar i'd like to talk a little bit more about sort of the davidson day program in a bit but i want to sort of jump back into just your career in music but more so i guess your love of music and when you whether you are starting to play music. A lot of people start playing other people's music. When did you start the transition from playing other people's music to writing your own music? And what was that leap like? It's not that I, I play my own music now. I just, that was more, more of, uh, in addition to, you know, it was just another aspect of, uh, and, you know, writing your own music, it, it, it's, a, it's a deceptive thing because you're so close to it. Sometimes you write stuff and you know it's good, you know, and other times you go, eh, it's, it's okay. And people go, that's, I love that, you know? And I go, well, I wrote that in 10 minutes. And they're like, yeah, it's amazing. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, and then the thing that I spent, you know, three months working on, they go, it's, it's, it's not bad, you know? How do you, honey, what do you think? Yeah, it's, you know, that's, that, bless her heart. You know, my wife, actually my wife always is, is mercifully very, uh, very honest with me. And, and, uh, but, uh, but it's you know playing your own music is a uh, you'd get self conscious obviously because if you know because it's it's your own creation you know and and uh, but and it, it's that same thrill though when you know the first time I had written recorded something and then uh, it was the NBA All Star Game and I'm listening to, you know and, and I, I don't watch I don't watch athletics I don't know how I happened to turn it on I think it was flipping channels and they were going to commercial and I heard a tune that I'd written and recorded playing this they call it a bumper in and out and uh, this this whole thing you know I was like wait I was like I know that that's my song you know and and, uh, and no one else would have noticed it it was really just background you know so it's not this awkward thing in and out of a commercial but uh, 
but it's extremely gratifying. You know, it, it's 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 pretty cool. But it can be it can be a tough thing. You know, it, like but it's no different than composing music. It's no different than being a writer or an architect or anything. You know, when you, anyone who's in the process of creation, when I say creation or creating something or expanding on something, you know, where you're you're taking an idea and bringing that to fruition. It, you know, there's a there's always a lot of risk. That's how I've always felt like jazz music because it's so improvisatory. The best jazz is when musicians are willing to take a risk. You might take a risk and make it. You know, you might try to do something and it and it works and it's amazing. And you might try it and it falls completely flat. And I've discovered, you know, when you're younger, you go, oh, that didn't work out very good. And as you're older, you go, that eh, didn't work, but but at least you tried. You know, at least you went for it. You know, nobody gets on the dance floor when the band is playing it safe. Yeah. You know, and that's always trying to tell my like my ensembles. I'm like. You got to, you got to, it's, it's all about heart. That's what people respond to. Honestly, Oscar Peterson, jazz pianist, amazing technique and unbelievable. And everything he did was just stellar and so genuine and, and, and swung hard. And yet it was, you know, flashy and everything. And then you have a blues player like John Lee Hooker, who basically played one chord. And it didn't even play that one chord very good, but dang, it was all hard. It was raw and it was honest and, that's what I respond to. That's what everyone responds to. We all we respond to honesty and to integrity and 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 heart. And how do you encourage kids to be that vulnerable to be able to like? That's not easy to do. Is because you're standing up there on stage and your your people are watching. Even if you're just rehearsing and your classmates are watching, and to really like take the leap to do what you would do if you were you know, just playing at home by yourself and just sort of lose yourself in it. Even though that's what we love, you know, you go see great musicians and what we love is that they, when they just lose themselves in it and they're just so into it. But crossing that line can feel really scary that I'm going to be as I would be at home as I would be on stage. How do you help kids sort of overcome that? And so they can bring their whole self or their heart into it. It's challenging, and it's cha- it was challenging for myself to learn how to, how to do that. Okay, I always tell them, if you're going to make a mistake, make a big mistake. I'd much rather you go for it and totally fall than to ease it. You know, like, oh, let me just kind of ease into it, and then, you know, yeah, and it comes back again. To, you know, I, The other thing that I do that I have found, if I'm just directing my students and I'm standing there, they're going to feel like they're twisting in the wind. You know, they don't know quite what they're doing. It's new. It feels uncomfortable. And so I, I play and sing with my bands, with both ensembles. I'm playing the whole time, and they hear me make huge mistakes all the time. And I and I always own them. And then I always and and then you know or I'll go and I'll go to sing. I have a weak vocal cord on my left on the left side of my. So when I sing, sometimes um, everything's fine. But in case I'm, my voice does this, right? You know. And so I'll be talking I'm like yeah, you know. And 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 I always tell them like it's funny sound. It's okay if you laugh. And I said. It's just how my voice is. I, I wish it wasn't that way, but it's it's okay. And then, but if I make some big mistake, I always go, okay. So, how many of you think less of me because I made a mistake? How many of you think I'm not any good anymore because I made that mistake? And you know, and, and I always say, well, no. I'm kind of said exactly. Yeah. I try to, uh, you know, you can tell them. You, you, I mean, you can certainly impart the wisdom by telling them, but. The example you lead by being up there doing it, and they, it, you know, they, if they see me screw up, and they, they'll see me make mistakes not only in rehearsal but when we go to perform as well, and they see how I turn that mistake or I don't make a big deal or it's just, I just it's like oh well you know yeah that's fine and and I also tell them that the vast majority you know, this is the thing you learn as a performer you learn as a teacher you learn as you know whatever you're doing uh, whether you're a pastor or whatever the vast majority of the time what I know to be a mistake. 99.7 of the audience won't, usually doesn't even pick up on it. Or I'm playing a maybe I'm playing a piano and it's woefully out of tune. And it might be driving me crazy. I, I've played some pianos, I swear I've been hit by a dump truck and you know, and had had people go, That's nice piano, that really sounds great. And I'm like, how long have you been deaf? Uh, You've been losing the hearing, is this tinnitus? Is you know, but I I never correct them because like to them, it sounded great. So why do they need to know what I like? Well, to be honest with you, you obviously don't know any better. This thing's horrible. No, I say, say, yeah, it's it. I'm glad you liked it. That's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad it sounded good to you. And and so understanding from a, a student, they can understand that number one, that the mistakes are not that, that most people won't even know about them. Also, explaining, okay, you knew what it was supposed to be, but the audience didn't. So if it didn't go where you thought it was going to, they had no idea where it was going to go anyway. Stay in the game, 
Try and let it go as quickly as you can. If we dwell on it, then you're going to miss everything coming up. Just let it go and keep having... And the other thing is that, that I always tell them, we've got to have fun. If we're not having fun, if we're having fun, the audience will have fun. If we're not having fun, the audience, no matter how great we play, the audience is not going to... We're not going to make a connection. And if we don't make a connection, you're not going to feel that thing from the audience, that, that this energy exchange that happens. And so I guess, but it is, I'm so proud of any student that, that takes that risk and steps out there, whether they're an athlete, you know, there's a, the athletes have to do the same thing. They have to do that thing where they're, that, that receiver has to go running down the field and this, that, that high school quarterback, you know, when he's throwing that long, they've got to hope, boy, I hope it gets there, you know, and if, if he falls short, you know. Everyone just saw it, but it's like that, you know, the, the, the coach that can tell that kid, that's all right. We'll keep working on it. We're going to, and it'll get better. And you're going to miss some of those. It's okay. So talking a little bit about teaching. So you launched the Davidson Day Contemporary Music Program in 2012. You sort of hung in there for a couple of years where you weren't too sure how it would all go. And then can you describe the the program now? So let's just say you're listening and you're either your kids in the middle school and not too sure what to expect in high school or you're a prospective family, you step into your classroom at the beginning of the year and what happens? <laughs> the, the program has grown and, and has, we now have two ensembles, which is amazing. One of nine students and one of 10. Now these are not, uh, but they're not audition ensembles. And, and so like when a, if a student comes to me and says, I'd like to play in the band, and, I, and well, you know, the first thing I ask, do, do you play an instrument? You know, I don't say, what instrument do you play? Do you play an instrument? And they go, some, and some students play to, you know, they have a lot of experience, or a lot of natural talent, and it's great. Others have very little experience. Maybe they're brand new. Maybe they just started playing piano the week before. And so what I do is I gear the music, I gear their parts to where they are. So like if I've got a guitar player that can play great, I'm going to let him do some heavy lifting. I say, hey, you know, hey, can you do this guitar part? And okay, let's can work on this. Let's get this line here. Can you do this thing over here? This deck and a can can you know while this thing. And then for the kid that, that just started playing keyboards, well, you know, he or she may be most comfortable right now with a single note. So I give them the notes that, that you know, okay, here's the chord, here's the notes I want you to play. Here's what, you know, this is a C, and then we're going to go to an F. That's you know, it's moving up through the eye. And I, you know, do it that way. I try to meet each student at their level. And uh, last year, like, for example, I had one of my ensembles, I had four students, and uh, I had a, a violinist who had never sang before. I had a clarinet player who played a little bit of keyboard and sang. Um, I had a, a keyboardist who had just started playing and had moved here from Tunisia, actually joined us in the middle of the year. And I had a, a trumpet player. Okay, I got no bass, got no drums. And uh, I'm like, all right, the, the, the violin player's name was Tom. And I said, Tom, you ever sang before? He's like, no. And I, I said, Let's try it. And so Tom started singing, you know, and, and, and he's like, I'm not real comfortable. I'm like, it's okay. Well, it's just us. We'll, we'll work on it. And the more you do it, it'll get and then, uh, and then I figured out how to get tracks where I had just bass and drums and, and filled out things. And I wrote, I wrote parts for the, uh, the clarinet and the, uh, the violin player. And then I sang with them too. So we had three part harmony and I got the keyboard player going. And the other ensemble, I had 13 students. I had four guitar players and two drummers and but they still played similar repertoires. And that uh, the one the one very small group that had non-traditional orchestration, we did For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. That, hey, Jim, what's that sound? Everybody, you know, we did that. We did uh, oh, uh, did uh, December 1963, Oh, What a Night by, by Frankie Valley and the Four C. Oh, what a night. You know. Land. Yeah. <laughs> let's, all, let's all sing it together here, even though none of us actually know all the words. <laughs> but those, if you came in on the first day, you'd find me kind of trying to figure out, okay, what do we got? What do we have here? But uh, I've found that uh, regardless of whether the uh, like one of my ensembles this year, very strong vocalist. The other, the other one uh, has less has some less experienced singers, but you know they they're doing great. And I try to meet them where they are and challenge them to you know and, and encourage and give them things that are that are slightly harder than where they're at, so that they're growing. And then you know, and, I, and I'm always in there with them. I'm singing with them. I'm playing with them. And uh, so they're not. They don't. Hopefully, don't feel like they're out there quite by themselves. And each year is very different. And I've been very, very fortunate thus, thus far. <laughs> the students have always stepped up and done it. And I always have a running joke whenever in my band, whenever we finish and it, it goes well, um, it's like, well, fooled them again. Let's, uh, let's go do it again. You know, and, uh, and people think I'm being flip or I'm being, you know, being uh, skeptic when I say that. And no, it's more of a joke. I, I, how many of us as parents, as teachers, as a new attorney, as a, you know, whatever, the new pastor at this church, feel like we're making it up as we go. You know, that's the thing you discover when you get to, you become an adult and you go, oh my gosh, 
my parents didn't have the answers to everything. They just made it up as they went. And I'm like, well, God bless them. They did a great job. <laughs> they did a great job doing it. But also like that for people who I think truly sort of uh, succeed or excel expectations is that they try new things and they're not and they're willing to sort of make it up as they go along. Like, I don't know exactly how I'm going to get from here to there, but I know I'm here. I know I have to get, I want to get there. And there's a next step I need to take. What is that? Okay, I'll take that. Okay, what do I need to do now? And then it just ends up being like these small incremental steps that build up into something else, right? Even just in the last few months, if I look back at all we've done from starting on July 1 to like, opening school and remaining open for a pretty long period of time so far and it's gone relatively well like each of them are just a whole bunch of people just listening collaborating and just making small decisions to get us like an inch further forward and it's a good example of if you have great people you're working with that your team that you're in a team with or in an ensemble with or that if you just like are in it together support one another and just don't get too far ahead you can do some pretty cool things and you look back and go, wow, did we do all of that? I think it, that's what I think is the magic of playing music with other people or doing any, whether they're playing sports or whatever it is in sort of in collaboration with others is just that, it does sound cliche, but just creating something that you could never have done on your own. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. And many of us, I think we, we think when we become an adult, we'll figure it out enough and then we can create this static thing, which is life. Life's not static. It doesn't work that way. Life works with, you know, with you've got to be moving and you're making constant adjustments. It's how traffic works. Mm-hmm. Traffic is never static. Well, unless you, depending on which locale you live, if you've ever driven through Dallas, Fort Worth, yeah, then it is static. Yes. But it, uh, but generally tra- the way traffic works is everything's moving and it's constant adjustments, constant, constant. Adju- and my brother gave, gave me that, that analogy one time. And that was when I realized, oh, don't, you know, don't, and, and I, I've been very fortunate. I look at it now. I've been very fortunate to be in uh, a lifestyle and a vocation that's, that's very fluid all the time. And it's, and there's a lot of uncertainty to the point where I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I don't mind if things, if I don't know what's, what's coming up. I wasn't always that way when I was younger, yeah. but you know, the more you do it and you realize, okay, I've screwed that up royal, but it, didn't kill me, you know? And so I went back and made adjustments and then started in a different direction or, or went, went the same direction, but with different, you know, like, okay, we're going to go the same way, but we're going to do it this, you know, we're going to take on this mindset or do it with these tools this time or, or do this before we get there. But you're talking about collaboration. Now that's, I could, uh, there's a lot of musicians, uh, like pianists, especially there's a lot of them who make a living or used to anyway, as solo pianists, like in a, used to be in a restaurant or somewhere Nordstrom's and, and, uh, I've played a lot of those sort of gigs and it's the most lonely thing in the world. And and matter of fact, I, they feel like the longest gigs of my life. And, and by the end of it, my back is killing me and I don't enjoy them. If I'm with another musician though, and there's collaboration and we're creating together, it's so much better there. And because it, uh, that sort of collaboration, it's exponential. So the creation, it's not just, okay, there's two of us. And so now we're creating something that, you know, the equal to two people, you know, that when I'm on the stands, particularly in a, in, in situations with really great jazz musicians where everyone is very tuned in, everyone is a collaborator. Everyone's there's not, you can't, not everyone can be a creator at once. You know, there, there tends to be one or two creators. Cause if everyone's a, it's that same thing, you know, there's uh, too many cooks spoil the broth, you know, but you have collaborators that, that, you know, that, that and so on. The, I've noticed on the bandstand, it shifts constantly to where like we'll be playing and, bass player, we're doing something and, and the bass player has an idea and he jumps and suddenly, and I'm here what he's doing. And I'm like, okay, what do I hear going along with that? What's, what do I, what do I hear that's complimenting that? Or maybe I'll just jump on that with him. Or maybe he's going, and I'm, I'm, we start this thing and we get a musical conversation going back and forth. And then all of a sudden the singer jumps in again, improvisatorially making some things up. And then suddenly she's now leading us down the road and we heard where she went and we went, okay, let's, let's, let's step in behind that. Pete, it's the most amazing thing in the world. And, and, and again, it's not exclusive to music at all, but you see those moments when, again, you're looking back, you know, you've got some amazingly talented people around you who understand their jobs and also understand when to step in, when to let you lead, when to step up beside, or when to step beside you and help you out or when to go, okay, I got my thing and I'm going to go off and, and, and take care of this. And while, you know, 
And here we are, you know, we're, we're halfway into the second, uh, second quarter and we've in the middle of a pandemic and quite successfully are having school face to face and not just getting by, but I mean, excelling and, and students are, are learning and growing and it's done in such a way that it feels somewhat normal. Yeah. I think something that you just said there was really powerful when it comes to sort of teaching kids about leadership in that's you know we talk about the second part of our vision talks about davison day uh, creates well-rounded compassionate leaders to succeed on a global stage and so i i think a lot about how we can like what is leadership how you can create young leaders and people to sort of um excel later on and sort of bring people together and and all of these different things and one of the things you just said there was just about when to step forward and when to step back like is i think there's this myth with young people as they come up is that uh that if you're going to lead a team lead a group lead a classroom discussion is that you always have to be at the forefront and right whereas i think the best leaders are those who know Notice when it's their time to step forward and to put their ideas into action, and it's and when it's their time to let other people lead, and then it's just that sort of push and pull. And like the great leaders that I've worked with, or people that I've studied, have been those who know when it's time to sort of step forward and say, so "Now it's my time." And others, it's just like, "No, now it's yours." And there's not this, I guess fear that if someone else is leading or excelling that that reflects badly it's just more like how, what is best for the band for the team for the school for the organization at that moment and i just find that sort of push and pull really quite fascinating and just that willingness not to be like in the lead and and is being able to sort of i guess sort of let go of that is is a real strength, but often people see it as a weakness. So what have you not done yet in your musical career that you aspire to do? When I was younger, I had a, uh, a rather ambitious bucket list. But at this point in my career, I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, and I, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had. I've, I've been able to do some really cool stuff, but when I see really cool stuff— I don't know if there's necessarily a bucket list as far as my career goes. I really—I mean, I, you know, do I want to play Carnegie Hall— It'd be nice if someone, you know, said, hey, Noel, we got a gig in Carnegie Hall. You want to come? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. But if I if I shuffle off this mortal coil with without playing Carnegie Hall, that's okay. Be honest with you, I think the only real goal I <laughs> the goal I have in the world of music is I'd like to uh I'd like to be playing in, in such a or playing at a level where I don't have to move my equipment anymore. You know, where I can literally walk in and there's a piano there or everything's set up and I've got tech people to take care of all that stuff. That actually would probably be my biggest goal. Uh, you know, it's not it's not some artistic thing or anything. It's literally just a logistical thing that that is uh and again, if that doesn't happen, that's 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 quite all right. <laughs> that's quite all right. But you know, the, the interesting thing is as I've gotten older, of course, you know, and I think everyone will associate will understand this. You have such ideals when you're younger, you know, and you or you you can like I, I look at my 23 year old daughter who's just amazing, but she's very idealistic, as was I at 23, and she's way better than I am. But uh, but you know, life comes down the pike for every single one of us. The rain the rain's going to fall on the just and the unjust, Pete, and uh, and uh, and you're we're all going to have to deal with with uh, tragedy. We're all going to have to deal with heartbreak. We're going to have to deal with disappointment. We're going to have to feel you know, and we're going to de- deal with all all these different things that life is going to is going to throw our way. And I had a friend of mine in Atlanta, an amazing bass player who I work with all the time. And, and he said, he, he goes, he goes, Hey, we were talking about, uh, talking about music and talking about gigs. And he said, well, he goes, you know, he goes anymore. He goes, I have three conditions for gigs. And if two of the three conditions are met, it's a good gig. And I said, I said, okay. I said, what are they? He goes, well, he goes, is it musically satisfying? I said, okay. And he goes, is it pay well? I said, okay, that's great. He goes, now I said, what's number three? He goes, is it a good hang? Meaning that you know, are you spending time with people whom you like and you feel enriched by being around them? And I'm like, and I thought about it, I was like, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, I've played in so many situations now, especially as I've gotten older. I'm like, you know what? The guys I was playing with, I was, maybe did some pickup gigs. It's like, you know, they weren't the best musicians, but they were they were great guys. We had a lot of fun and, and it paid well and it was a great gig. And the, the funny thing is when I was younger, it would be, oh, it's got to be musically satisfying. And then I started a family. It's like, well, it better pay well. And it, <laughs> And now, literally, the the 
by far the most important is is it's a good is it a good hang i'm so much more interested in the relationships i'm so much more i reached that point about 5 10 years ago where i just i didn't have time for drama anymore and i and i i didn't want that sort of stuff in my life and i i didn't go around and just say you're no longer <clears throat> you see that with my voice you're you're no longer a friend of mine because you know you, you seem toxic i've started feeling my my or surrounding myself with more and more people that i respect and love and and whom when I'm around, I feel better. Yeah. And that's that's been just amazingly gratifying and has made life this really, really pretty wonderful thing, you know? The first question is, what is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Huh. There's actually two books that I find myself saying, have you ever seen this or have you ever read this? One of them has a very unusual title. And, and if you catch this right in the middle without the setup, you're going to go, why is he teaching at Davis and Davis? But it's called The Devil's Dictionary. It's by Ambrose Bierce. It's from the late 1800s. It was actually a series of newspaper articles. It was, called the, it was originally called The Cynic's Dictionary. But it's just very, very clever. The, these clever definitions, you know, it's like the, you know, the, a gentleman. It's a, a gentleman is a, someone who knows how to play the accordion but doesn't. You know, that, that sort of thing. It, they're very, very, very clever. But I think the book that I think that has most uh, impressed me, I don't know if this changed my life, but I love the way it, it the perspective it gives you, is by, uh, by James Burke. It's called Connections. And he's done a series of books. He did a PBS series as well. But he, like, if you read Connections, it's each chapter starts off, there's one in, in particular, starts off talking about the invention of the loom, that they would weave, uh, weave rugs. And initially, of course, they were all done initially by hand, and then they figured out how to do this thing with the, you know, with the shuttle back and forth, and they could much, much quicker, and, you know, and they could, uh, and they could make, you know, textiles and tapestries. And then they figured out, they, using a series of rods that they could put patterns in, you know, into these, uh, while, they were, while they were weaving these, these rugs and tapestries. So what they would do is they'd come up with a long strip with various holes, and it would allow these rods at different places to come up through, and that would, uh, the, the pattern would progress. Well, basically, you know, what it was is it would allow this rod to go through, which would allow the string to go to this place, other place it wouldn't. And if the, there was a hole there, then it was open. If there was not a hole, it wasn't. Well, it's was a, it a binary system, zero and one. And from that, you can, he traces it. Okay, so it started, here's the loom, and then they did this, and then they did this. And eventually, we get to the modern computer, which started with, you know, with, with the punch cards, which was binary code. And, uh, you know, it, I think the book starts with the Battle of Flanders, which was a, a major uh, turning point for, I couldn't even tell you who, I can't remember, I can't remember the, uh, the two armies, but the army that won, they came in with their cavalry, and they had stirrups for the very first time. Stirrups allowed them to take their hands off the horse. They could now, they could turn on the horse. They could, they could fire, they could do all these things, they could keep their balance, they wouldn't fall off as easily. And it was a huge turning point. And he and it, you know, he traces that to the creation of the atomic bomb. This led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And then now, you know, people go in, they de debunk some of this. But and as this is this is a way longer answer than you wanted for a rapid fire question. Anyway, James Burke Connections. It's an excellent, uh, excellent book, definitely worth, definitely worth reading. And the next one is, and I don't know if you do have any free time, but what are some things you love doing in your free time? <laughs> You know, I have for the first time. Uh, I've been telling my wife for ten years something's got to something's got to give because I work typically, you know, between. Uh, yeah, I, I teach here full time. I have a salary church position. I teach adjunct out at UNC Charlotte. I have my own band, and I do a lot of other. So I typically work seventy hours, sixty seventy hours a week. But anyway, I've had some free time since uh, since the pandemic, which in a in a strange way has been a blessing. And uh, but if if I do have free time, the thing I enjoy more than anything is is actually spending time with my wife. It's something that, uh, as we've gotten older, we've uh, the, the I call it the gift of age. We've both probably mellowed a bit. We both are more gracious to each other, and we I think we both appreciate each other more than we ever have. Plus, we've just emptied the nest, so we were able to do things where we can focus with it. So when I do have free time, uh, I enjoy it uh, with my wife. Matter of fact, it, well, anyway, we, we, uh, we've started in the last few years starting to do some getaways, which we never did before. I mean, when you have younger children, it's almost impossible. But it's, it's been absolutely precious. It's been amazing. That's awesome. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? You know, I have very few regrets. Um, 
in uh, in my life. Uh, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes and things I wish I'd done differently. But as far as regrets, you know, I you know, uh, I, I try to let go of some of those. But the one regret I have is I'm not bilingual, and I wish I, if I could, I I would love to speak a second language, second or third language. Um, and it doesn't really matter to me what it is. I think as as far as what my travels in the last ten years, particularly with Matt Saunders and Afar. Um, gosh, I wish I could speak Spanish in addition to English. I mean, and it, it's such an American thing that we, most Americans are, are, uh, are monolingual and, uh, and, and, it, and it's, yeah. And it's, and I, and I think it's just such a, so regrettable. My daughter, uh, my youngest daughter is, uh, Izzy, Isriella. Uh, she changed, she went from going from her nickname to her full name now in college. Um, she's, uh, she's, she's going to be a French, uh, she's either gonna be a French major or French minor, but she's, she's, she's going to be bilingual. She's going to do study abroad. And I'm so proud that one of my children is is so that that would that would be what I would do. Awesome. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? <laughs> I kind of alluded to it before. I quit trying to please everyone. It, you know, it's funny. I don't like everybody. I don't know why I expected every I wanted everyone <laughs> wanted to, to like me. You know, and I kind of came to terms with it. It's okay if people don't like me. I'm I'm okay. And uh, and also, uh, I I quit trying to. Uh, uh, you know, this uh, the, the phrase, I can't tell you the secret of success, but I can tell you the sure way to fail is to try and please everyone. Yeah. I've learned how to say no, and I've also learned how to shoot straight with, I used to be so scared of, of communicating because I was afraid that you'd get mad at me or something or there'd be a problem. And gosh, now I, I'm, it's, I'm much more comfortable just, just throwing it out there and, and, and not like, oh, well, let's throw it out and see where the chips fall in me, but just... You know, I found that the, the big scary thing, it's it's like the fear in the dentist office before the appointment. The appointment, you know, oftentimes isn't pleasant, but it's often usually not near as bad as what was in my mind. My fear of it was much worse than the actual experience. That end, I decided that uh, I didn't want toxic people in my in my in my life and didn't I just quietly started distancing myself from those folks. And uh, and and that's made a huge difference as well. So so two more. The first one is, what advice would you give someone wanting to become a professional musician? <laughs> Go into computer repair. Advice for someone, okay, the, the, the thing that, and this is universal, it doesn't go just for music, but music is such a, if you watch American Idol, there's, you know, there's thousands of people coming into audition and none of them are being paid, you know, uh, you know, or if you, uh, I always, in my music business class out at UNC Charlotte, I always tell them like, hey, you know, the oratorio singer, oratorio singers, the, the chorus that sings with the Charlotte Symphony, how much do you think they get paid? And they go, uh, $200 each or hundred, you know, they don't, none of them. They all play for free. They sing for free. They'll do, you know, eight performances of the magic of Christmas and not make a dime because there's so many people who can sing, so many, so much talent. People are willing to do it for, you know, they don't have to pay them to get good singers to show up and do it. But music is so rewarding and so fulfilling and, and people are willing, you know, folks are willing to do that. So, but the main thing I think is, uh, you know, to anyone wanting to go into music is, uh, you know, learn your instrument or your voice or whatever your, your medium is and get less sleep. Meaning there's no shortcut to the work, but every minute you are not practicing your competition is. And the idea that uh, when I got to college, I didn't know how to practice. And then, you know, within a year, I was practicing four to six hours a night, seven days a week, no days off. You know, I mean, and it was that was a and it had to be that way. There was no way I could have gotten to where I am without that amount of time. There's simply regardless what field you want to go into, there is no shortcut to the work. You, you're going to have to put it. You're going to, have to pay your dues. They say 10,000 hours to master something. I figured up the other day, I've spent at least 20,000 hours on the piano. I'm not even, I'm just scratching the surface, Pete. You know, you have to make sure that's what you really want to do. You also have to be very careful. You can turn your passion or your love into a job. You can, you can rob the joy out of it. I often, I usually tell uh, folks like my son is going into music, but he's, he's really good at video editing, video production. And I'm like, do that, pay your bills with that. It's creative. You like it. You know, but it's not necessarily your passion, but you, you love doing it, but it's not necessarily like the thing that, that, you know, that, and I said, and that way you can do your music and you can do anything you want with your music. You don't, cause when I made music, my job, I had to, the man that pays the fiddler calls a tune. So I had to, I had to do what folks were paying me, wanted me to do. I couldn't necessarily follow my artistic muse. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so you've got to be very careful about, about when you try to decide, oh, I'm going to make my, my thing, you know, into the way I'm going to get compensated. So it, that's, that's the other thing to, to, to be cautious of. So I oftentimes tell folks, you know, don't necessarily do music full time. 
keep it as a part-time thing because I mean, and that doesn't mean you, you know, you can't, but it's a tough field to make a living in. And uh, again, I've been very fortunate, you know, and, and, uh, but at the same time, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. You've got to go hundred percent at it or just keep it as a pastime. It's great advice, especially the hard work aspect of it. It's my daughter, Ruby was playing volleyball for the first time this fall. And there was all these kids much better than her and everything. And, I said to her, why do you think they're better than you? And she goes, I don't know. I don't know. You know, she was feeling down. I said, I said, it's time. Like they've just spent more time doing it. Right. And if you spent the same amount of time, like you would likely be nearly as good. Right. Of course, there's some kids with sort of more sort of natural gifts that move forward quicker and things. But, and, you know, and I said to her, great example is she's this a phenomenal artist, right? It's sort of 10 years old, but she has spent thousands of hours drawing, watching videos online of like really famous, like illustrators, like Jan Brett illustrates and Ruby will copy what she's doing, like thousands of hours doing it. I'm saying thousands, like it's a tremendous amount of time. And so I said, so people look at, look at her and go, she's really talented. It's like, no, well, Maybe, but she's just spent a ridiculous amount of time doing this. And chances are, if other 10-year-olds spent the same amount of time, had the same amount of passion, they'd be equally as good. But often people look at people who are excelling at other things and go, oh, they're lucky or they're talented, rather than realizing they've done 20,000 hours and still feel like they're scratching the surface. Well, and Pete, you're so right. I mean, there's that the idea that... Um Talent sometimes can be a curse because things do come easy. And so there's there's not the impetus, there's not the the necessity of work, particularly as a younger age, of working hard. Yeah. And I've seen it so many times. When I got to when I got to college and I was surrounded by amazing musicians, guys much, much better than I was, guys and gals much better than I was. And they were more talented than I were, but several, quite a few of them had been able to write on the natural talent and they didn't know how, yeah. they didn't have the discipline. I had the work ethic. I was willing to go in and, and practice, but I was able to develop because of that. And and uh, that, that that phrase, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. You know, I, I, it's a it's a platitude, bumper sticker platitude. But gosh, there's so much. To, but but when you find those that have the talent and, and work, work hard, okay. yeah, those are outliers. And you know, and yes, you can hold up someone like Michael Jordan. But Michael Jordan was he stayed after practice when everyone else went in and shot free throws for an hour. Tiger Woods was the first one on the driving range before anyone else was at the top of his game. You know, it's like, why would he need to do that? Well, because he's combining discipline with his, um, it's immense talent. And uh, that's something that, that's something to behold right there. Yeah. And I think it's, it's easy to overlook it when you see, you, you're seeing the, the end product of like, someone's ability to play music or play sports or write or whatever. You're not seeing the countless hundreds of hours that, that go into sort of the work. I did a project, uh, they, this, they needed to, the, group needed a, uh, need, they were doing a virtual rendition of uh, Amazing Grace. And they asked me to do an arrangement and record the, the piano track and with video because there was one of those where they put it together with all the musicians are all singing together and they because we couldn't be in the same room because of COVID restrictions. And I sat down and I recorded the track and did my, my audio and a, <laughs> I did the vocal and did it with video and audio together. And it took me, you know, I, I did one and I sent it over to him and he's like, hey, can you do it, change a little bit? And within, within an hour it was done. And, uh, and he kind of made this comment like, wow, how much am I paying you? you? You did that in less than an hour. And I'm like, you're not paying me for that hour. You're paying me for the 30 years prior that allowed me to do that in less than an yeah, hour. You know, That's a great, great way to look at it. Okay, last question. What inspires you? Oh, goodness. You know what inspires me? And this is going to kind of come full circle. It's seeing, and I'm going to use I'm going to use my my peers here at, at Davison Day School. It's seeing people that that are so passionate and so good at what they do. And, and the word passionate gets thrown around so much, it kind of loses some meaning. But the, but these 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 are folks that truly their names get brought up a lot. And but I can I can go through the entire upper school hallway. I mean, I literally like this summer. I was going through dealing with a lot of some stress, and news was getting me, you know, down. And I and and I was kind of snowballing, which kind of caught me off guard because I usually do better with it. And and watching those folks and and their commitment to teaching, their commitment to their vocation, they don't cut corners, they don't settle for good enough. I find myself, I always try and tell folks like the difference between good and great is these little details. And the teachers on that upper school hallway and, and the lower school everywhere, I say, they do great work because their attention to detail and, and they do it day in and day out. 
That inspires me. That that's you know, and, and and certainly you can look at the you know some of the, you know maybe great musicians or, or people you know like Jane Goodall who worked with you know the, you know and, and you know they're amazing. I look at Jane Goodall or Mother Teresa and I go, that's un- I can't attain that. These these are, these folks are so much better than I am. It's both not only as vocation but just as people. But I look around people that I work work next to and I go, gosh. Pete, that's the whole reason I came back the second year. These people were, the, these folks here were inspiring and, and, uh, and they continue to be. And people like yourself have come in with energy and bright eyed and dealing with all these unknowns and uncertainties and, and steep learning curve. And yet you come in and you're pleasant each day and you, and I feel comfortable and I feel like I'm important and valued. And, but the, the people around me that I've seen are, are just amazing to me. They really are. Well, now this has been a tremendous amount of fun, mate. I appreciate everything you do for Davidson Day, and thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for letting me fool you one more day, and I'll come back tomorrow. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.